On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about radon gas. Why are we talking about something you've probably never heard of? Well, exactly for that reason. We'll explain why it's important to you in just a moment. We're also going to talk about e-scooters. These are these things that you see in some American cities, mostly electric scooters that people are bombing around on. There are people who want to bring them to Hamilton. There are good reasons for that. There are also some things that we need to wonder about. We'll talk about those as well. And the Grey Cup would have been this week. Rod Peterson from Regina, home of the beating heart of the CFL, joins us to talk about the future of that league. Stay with us. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Name one thing you know about Radon. Okay, I couldn't do it either. Uh, Not to worry. I basically know nothing about Radon gas or why City Council was talking about it today. Until I read the piece in the spec that pointed out that this toxic gas was discovered in 14% of Hamilton homes that were tested. 14%, which is three times higher than the national average. I'm not entirely sure why it's so high here. Maybe we'll get an answer to this. I'm not sure. But the other question is, why does this matter? Well, it matters because the stuff causes cancer potentially, and it could be in your home. Kelly Bush is the head of of Radon, not Random, Radon Education and Awareness under Health Canada's National Radon Program. She joins me now. Kelly, thanks for doing this today. Thanks for having me, Scott. Um, Well, look, we, we know, I think most people anyway, know all about carbon monoxide, which is similar in some ways. It's odorless and you can't see it. Maybe that's the only comparison, but I think most people know basically nothing about radon. Why? Well, um, that's a great question. Uh, Health Canada has had a national radon program in place for the last 10 years, and we've been making efforts to raise awareness um, to make sure Canadians understand the risk related to radon, which is that it's the number one cause of lung cancer if you're a non-smoker. But most importantly, that there's something that you can do about it, that you can test your home to find out if you have high levels, and if you do, you can reduce them. So this, I mean, you said you've been at this for 10 years now. This is, it, radon itself is not new. And I understand, or at least I believe the the effects that we know, as you point out, lung cancer, that's not new. We haven't just discovered in the last number of years what the effects are. No, no. And while it's true not enough Canadians know about it, a lot more know about it today than they did 10 years ago. And we do um, surveys and research to understand that. But it's, radon itself is a challenging um, health risk. To get people to pay attention to. First of all, not a lot of people are worried about getting lung cancer if they don't smoke. They're not thinking about that as a risk, but it is a risk as it relates to radon. The other thing is it's not an immediate risk like carbon monoxide. So it's not something that's going to kill you if you're exposed to it in a very short period of time. And then, like you said earlier, you can't see it or smell it. So it's just not tangible. So people just don't think it's a risk for them. All right, let, let's get right, I mean, right down to the basics of this, because again, I, I, I'm not suggesting that you haven't been doing a good job explaining this to people, but because as I say, it's not something we talk about in our daily life. I don't think many people know much about it. What causes radon? Why would it be in your house? Okay, great question. So radon comes from the breakdown of uranium in soil and rock. Uranium is everywhere in the Earth's crust. So it's not a question as to whether or not you have some radon gas in your home. It's, the question is how much, because the higher the level, the higher the risk. But it's, it, in, as, as long as your home is in contact with the ground, you have some level of radon in it, but you want to know how much. 
And if your home is not in contact with the ground, you probably have bigger problems than radar. <laughs> <laughs> or a tree um, house or a boat house. They well, okay. <laughs> true. Yeah, true. Okay. I, I wasn't even thinking about that. I was thinking more like Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz, but okay. Um, is there a certain type of ground then, like if your house was built in a rockier area as opposed to more of a muddier or dirtier area, is there more likelihood? Uh, not necessarily. Certainly where there's more uranium um, and you'll, there's likely to be more radon in your home and you'll know those regions of Canada that have more uranium, typically, typically because there was historically uranium mining. But that being said, one of the things that we've done under our national radon program is to do uh, measurement surveys across the country. And a really important message is we didn't find any parts of the country that didn't have some homes mm. with high levels. So even but that could potentially explain then why Hamilton, these tests have found three times the, the, the national average, because there could be more uranium deposits around this area, potentially, I guess. Potentially, yeah. It could be uranium rich, yes. And, and I would assume then that when you're dealing with radon, that the concern would be in your basement or is it throughout the whole house? It's uh, throughout the whole house because we have uh, ventilation systems that move the air in our home. And I, I certainly don't want anyone thinking that that doesn't have a basement where there might be slab on grade that they don't, they aren't at risk. Um, but typically the lower, the, the lower levels have the highest levels of radon. Yes. And is there a certain um, climate that leads to the rock breaking down or the, the, this kind of thing to happen more? No, it's just the natural process of disintegration for uranium to, to move through its process and at one point becomes radon gas. And when it goes through its full process, actually, it ends up being lead. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. You use words like breaking down and uranium. And I, I mean, I start to hear things like nuclear bombs and more than that, though, because uh, I know it's not enriched uranium we're talking about, but nonetheless, I, is this stuff radioactive? Is that what this becomes? So it is. It's naturally occurring radioactivity, which is everywhere in our environment. Um, and radon happens to be a radioactive gas. And that's what causes the damage to our lung tissue, which over time, if you're exposed to it for a long period of time, can lead to the development of lung cancer. One other thing about how it gets into the house, do you have to, can it seep through walls and that kind of thing? Or do you have to have a crack in the foundation or something that would allow it to get in? Great question. No, it, it doesn't need a crack. Concrete, if you have a concrete foundation, for example, it's still porous. It's a gas and it's, it will find its way into the home, even if you have a perfect concrete foundation without a crack in it and also just the nature of how we build our homes there are gaps around pipes there are construction joints so there's some holes there's always ways for the radon gas to find its way into the home okay so today uh, at council the city has decided that it's going to require all new homes in the city to be built with radon systems or to have one roughed in so that one could be put in what is a radon system what does that mean Sure. So, uh, like I said earlier, um, the most important thing to know about this is that you can do something about it. So the first step is to test and to find out if you have high levels. And if you do, you can have a radon reduction system installed in your home. Um, And what that typically is, is a four inch PVC pipe that's put through your foundation floor and then piped outside of your house, either at ground level or roof line with a small fan attached. And what that 
system does is draws the soil gas and radon from under your home and pushes it outside before it gets inside and it's diluted outside and it can reduce the radon levels in your home by over 80%. So the very effective systems can be installed in less than a day in most homes. And, and it but doesn't sound very complicated. No, it's not. You want to have a certified professional do it because yes. the important thing <laughs> is to place it in the right place, right? So that it's drawing across your full foundation floor. But really the concept is not complicated. And for the building codes, what they're talking about is just having either a rough in for that system where you have a cap pipe and you can extend it, or in some um, building codes, provincial building codes, what they've done is a full passive system. So they'll have a uh, the pipe that goes from the ground level to all the way to the roof without a fan, but even without the fan, there is some natural draw that will c help reduce the radon level in a home. Uh, yeah, and you want to have an expert because anytime you're drilling through your foundation, it's probably it's probably a good idea not to do it yourself. Uh, is, is, is it more likely or, or does it matter? I don't even know if I asked this already. Um, is, is it more likely to occur in older homes because of the ground around that would break down more or because you, anywhere you dig, the ground could already be breaking down? Yeah. So we've, we've done a, a fair bit of research. Uh, I, I mentioned the cross Canada surveys that we've done where we've measured tens of thousands of homes. Um, and as a part of that, we collect data on the types of homes, the age of homes, the construction, because we would love to find a correlation. It would make a lot, it's a lot easier for us to tell Canadians which ones are at risk. But the reality is that it, all homes are at risk, new and old. So putting that in, do you know, uh, do you know what a system costs? I mean, if you, if you discover you have it, so the new homes are going to have to have this put in, that'll be absorbed by the, not absorbed by the builder. They'll, they'll factor it into the cost of your house. But if you have an existing house and you want to get one or have to get one, what does that cost? Typically the cost is between two and $4,000 to install a mitigation system. And the other thing I'll mention too is above and beyond the, some of the building code changes that they're talking about, if, um, if you own a newer home and it has a Tarion home warranty of seven years, then radon mitigation is covered under that Tarion home warranty in Ontario. Mm. If you don't know that you need to get now, I, okay, one other thing before I get to how to do a test, is it possible to do a test in your home to find out that you don't have a radon gas problem and five years later it becomes a problem no not typically if you've done a long-term test unless you make a significant structural change to your home so you add a big addition or you do something where you've created more area where radon gas could come in typically if you do one test um, for three months we recommend a long-term three-month test you shouldn't have to test again and can you do, a, I mean, is there a equipment to do a home test? Can you buy it yourself and do a test at home or do you have to bring someone in? Yeah, no, you have both options. So uh, I'll, I'll say that November is Radon Action Month. There's lots of information um, that we're trying to get out to let the public know that they can test. Um, and they have two options. You either buy a do-it-yourself test kit or you hire a certified measurement professional. Um, a do-it-yourself test kit typically costs between 30 and $60. And if you go to takeactiononradon.ca, you can find a list of uh, test kit providers and uh, service uh, professionals that will provide those, those long-term test kits that we recommend. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. E-scooters, electric scooters. Saw them in Los Angeles a couple of years ago. Kind of like a bike share. You pay 
money. You put your credit card on a scanner on the thing and it's an electric thing that's all charged up and away you go. And it drags you around the city wherever you want to go. It's kind of like the bike share, only I would argue that when you see it, it looks a whole lot more fun. Also a little more chaotic. So, you know, there is that. I want to bring in Chad Collins, uh, Councillor Chad Collins, who was part of the conversation, obviously, today. Thanks for doing this, Councillor. Thanks for having me on, Scott. Uh, the folks who are, now this came up, as I say, tied to the whole idea of the bike share, which we know the city has tried to divest itself or has divested itself of the cost of running it. Mm-hmm. But are the people who are behind this, are they pushing for these e-scooters or is this just something that came up as a, hey, here's an idea for down the road? Yeah, I think the as our staff were in front of us, we were debating the extension of the contract for the Sobe bike operation. And so it, it was extended for another two years. And tied to the program, our staff mentioned in the report that we'll soon be um, debating whether or not to allow e-scooters in the city. And, and it's not their private operation. It'd be a um, it'd be a, a private companies that would have the ability, like Sobe, to offer the services that you referenced, uh, that you noticed in Los Angeles. And of course, they're they're all over North America. Um, I know a, a number of Canadian cities recently have, have been through pilot projects. And so staff were giving us the heads up at the meeting to say that um, there is a report coming in December that will speak to e-scooters and their use here locally and how that service might be provided by three private companies. And um, the revenues that uh, might be gained from that uh, could support and be invested into the Sobe operation, which, as you mentioned Mm. earlier, does not receive any city support at this point in time. Well, let's talk about a couple of the pros and cons with this. And and again, um, uh, you know, people have seen these in other cities. The the one benefit, and you just touched on it, I mean, they look like, honestly, they're a lot more fun to me than riding a bike. Uh, It looked like people who were riding them when I saw them. We're enjoying it. So you get more people using them, which then presumably allows more money and that will then prop up the Sobe program and then you don't have to pay for it. Correct. Yep. So there's a, there's a definitely a financial benefit to us and, and certainly, you know, it's a green type of transportation uh, where we've, you know, where, where we've seen these programs in other cities, they've been quite successful, but there is a downside to them. And so uh, from an upside perspective, um, they're fun and people are using them in great numbers. And I think uh, to your point there earlier, in terms of comparing the two, uh, I believe in, in Calgary's um, pilot program, they witnessed far more people um, using the e-scooters than were using the the, um, the bikes. And and so, you know, from that perspective, they're very marketable. And um, but there, you know, there are some issues that come with these types of devices, and we've seen them over the years, right? From you know. Um, Paul Blart and Mall Cop with the Segway. <laughs> That's what we need. Segways. There's, yeah, there's all <laughs> kinds of those devices out there. And this seems to be the newest one on the block. But they seem to be quite popular, I think, because they're, they're fairly inexpensive and they're fun to ride. And so in other cities where they've had pilot programs, and I'm sure we'll hear this in December from our staff when the report is submitted to committee and council, but we have, they have had problems with people using them on sidewalks, which is an issue certainly for pedestrians and those with disabilities. They've had issues with people just leaving them haphazardly in front of driveways and in the middle of sidewalks and in areas where they're not supposed to. And then there's that just that whole issue of mixing speed with pedestrians. And, you know, I my ward has the waterfront trail, and it's a regular occurrence where I have people calling and emailing to say that someone's illegally using the trail with a, an e-bike or... You know, we have um, we have cyclists just on on regular bikes that are 
people come in these racing jerseys and there's, you know, clubs that come from the GTA and they're using people who walking on the trail almost as pylons as they make their way from one end to the other. And so it, you know, there, there is a downside and there are certainly, there's no shortage of information to show that there have been accidents in other cities. And, and there's danger, not just for those pedestrians that are on the sidewalks, but there's also those people who aren't using, using them um, um, under the rules and regulations that have been posted you know, there, there have been people who have been seriously injured. And so, you know, I, I, I think we'll just need to ensure that if it if we um, implement a pilot program here, Scott, like other municipalities have, that we have the proper rules and regulations in place to ensure that we're protecting not just those people using the e-scooter, but for those people who are using our trails, sidewalks, and other areas of our city. First of all, I think it's time, based on your idea here, that we abandon the e-scooter discussion completely and just go to Paul Blart segways all over the city. I think that's a way better idea. Well, they stopped making them this year. I, I, I noticed that earlier in, during the pandemic, that segways are officially no longer being um, built. And so they're, they seem to have, they're a thing of the past now, apparently. So if you have Well, I thought that was when the guy who, didn't the guy who made them? die riding one or something like that anyway well, well that's right. a different story for a different day right. but about the sidewalks and about the e-scooters and yes i was going to ask you about this because when we were down in la uh they did look like a lot of fun but they're almost exclusively on the sidewalks because you can't really ride one on the road you'll get run over by a car and in the bike lanes they kind of seem to be in the way of the bike so where do where would you ride them well, I believe uh, they're regulated under the Highway Traffic Act. If they're electric and they're on the road, they come with certain regulations. So there, there are age requirements. I know for anything that's electric on the road, you know, you, the minimum age is 16. You need a helmet. You, in some, depending on the device that you have, you might need a license. So there are provincial rules that govern their use. Uh, I, I would think that uh, based on the fact that it is electric, that uh, they, they would be required to follow the you know the highway traffic act if they're being used on city streets and of course that puts them at more danger than anyone else depending on what road they're they're using uh, on sidewalks they're they're not permitted um, they're not permitted on the waterfront trail i know for certain in terms of electric uh, devices are not permitted unless it's for someone who has a disability and is using an electric wheelchair as for instance um, and so there's there's all of those issues to sort out in terms of the conflicts that arise when people aren't using them um, as they should. And then there's the enforcement aspect. And I think you'll... Well, let me... We got to jump in and do a quick break. Yeah. I'm going to come back and talk about enforcement with you in just a second. We'll be back with Chad Collins right after this. Stay with us. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. This is something that I've wondered for a long, long time about bikes in this city. Uh, it would be even more so with scooters. How can the city enforce any kind of bylaws? Because theoretically, you don't have a license. You don't have to even have ID, I suppose, with you. If you break a law, what happens? Yeah, so bikes um, bikes in particular can be enforced under the Highway Traffic Act. So they're, they're subject to the same rules, certainly, as motorists when it comes to, um, you know, respecting the rights of pedestrians um, lane changes, uh, stop signs, and the like. And so the police have the ability to pull people over and, and issue tickets. Our bylaw officers do not have that ability on, on the road, but they do have that ability in uh, city parks and open spaces where we have rules and regulations that need to be followed. And so the same would apply for e-scooters. Uh, I know that, as a, for instance, in other cities, they had no, um, no-go zones, so to speak. So Ottawa and their downtown market, when e-scooters would approach that area, they would just shut off. 
And so the, apparently there's geotracking technology that allows municipalities to implement areas where mm. if, as, if, as a, for instance, we wanted to make the waterfront trail a no-go zone because they're, they, you know, it's heavily uh, pedestrian, we could uh, make that part of the requirement of the contract with the provider and it'd be open to the municipality on a certain spot to, to, you know, look at many areas where we would uh, provide those same limitations. And it's, and again, to protect uh, pedestrians, much as uh, much like what Ottawa did in their, in their downtown market. And so there, our bylaw officers do have the ability uh, to issue tickets. Um, it, it is a little bit of a, a, a delicate situation when they, they ask for ID if someone says they're not providing it. Um, you know, I, I, I think we run into a bit of an issue, but for most people, they are compliant when a bylaw officer stops them um, and, and questions them and asks for ID for the purposes of providing it or issuing a ticket. Uh, traditionally, we don't have a problem with that. So there are rules and regulations, and I think most municipalities that have adopted e-scooter pilot programs have a, a long list of rules and regulations, and to varying degrees, they've been successful across Canada and other parts of the world. I mean, I, I'm not really wanting to talk about cycling per se. It's more about the e-scooters, but do you, you say that, you know, cops or bylaw officers can stop cyclists and give tickets? Do they? Because I've never, ever seen that happen. I've seen bicycles run red lights and bicycles on sidewalks and bicycles do all kinds of stuff. I've never seen one stopped by a police officer or a bylaw yeah. officer. I, I don't know. I, I mean, I've seen people pulled over. I don't know how many tickets Hamilton police issue a year. Um you know, and, and with, as we've seen more people on e-scooters and e-bikes, and so, you know, gravitating from a pedal uh, pedal push uh, method to an electronic method, we see all kinds of people now using bike lanes with, with non-traditional bikes. And so there, I know for certain that, um, you know, there, there have been an increase in calls of complaints from people for people who are using those devices inappropriately. And I know that the police have responded to those complaints. And of course, this past summer, Council approved uh, my motion to have uh, bylaw officers on our trail, and um, for the first month of July, we had um, we, we were issuing. It was more of an education campaign, and we were issuing warnings. And I'd have to check Scott to see what August held in store for us as it relates to tickets. But I, I know that you know we we did find a number of violations from everything from people using the trail inappropriately to bonfires on the beach and things of that nature. So. Um, I think it's important that whenever you introduce an element of speed with pedestrians, that there there are rules and regulations, and it's only good if you if you have an enforcement tool attached to that. Um, if you have rules and regulations and they're not enforced, they really don't mean anything at the end of the day. We only have a minute or so, but back to the idea of the reason for the e-scooters or one of them, which is to try and pump up the health of the Sobe bikes. Uh, we heard today that the usage is down. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm assuming a lot of that is to do with COVID or maybe there's something else that we don't really know about. But um, is this is is the idea of the bringing in the e-scooters essential then if we want to n- keep it going and not have the city have to jump in? Well, I, I think it's a good first start. Other cities, we're not the first ones to do it. So, you know, the benefit we have of, of looking at it for 2021 will be that we'll be able to learn from the experience of places like Ottawa and Calgary and other municipalities. I think it's another form of transportation that allows people to use um, something other than a car for short trips. It's inexpensive. I think that's why a number of people have gravitated to some of those other devices that we've talked about. And, um, I, I, you know, I, I think... 
the younger generation, less of them are buying cars and driving. I know my kids want to drive and they're bugging me for their first car. But, um, <laughs> you know, the, there are demographically and generationally, you know, there are less young people driving today than there were, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. And so I, I just think it's the trend we're seeing with this generation. And I think, um, you know, there are a number of people it, and proof is in the pudding with the usage in other cities. There are a number of people looking at this device and others that say, geez, I, I just like to, to use it for the fun of it. It's not really their sole method of transportation. It's it's just a, a form of entertainment. It's it's another reason to get outside. And I, I don't see the downside with, with those issues. You have kids old enough to drive? Yeah, one just he just got his, uh, I don't know what they call it. My, in my day, it was beginners. Now it's G1 yep. or something. I can't remember. Yeah, now it's the gray hair maker is what it's okay. called for, the, for mom and dad. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to bring in Rod Peterson. Uh, Rod is, if you're going to talk about the CFL, there are a few people to turn to, and Rod is absolutely on that short list. He was the longtime voice of the Saskatchewan Rough Riders, now the host of the Rod Peterson Show, coming to us from Regina. Rod, how are you today? Awesome, man. Good to hear from you, Boo. I love talking CFL with you. Well, and I love when you come on, and I got to say, though, it's probably a little bit of sad times because right now you should have been sitting right smack dab in the middle of a rather giant party because it is Great Cup Week and there is no place that loves the CFL more than Regina. Um, any consternation out there among the folks or had this kind of, had they resigned themselves to the fact that this wasn't happening so it's all just life as normal? Uh, there's not a lot of talk about the Grey Cup around here this week only because right around Labor Day people put to bed this season and um, it's just too depressing to talk about, to yeah. be honest with you. I mean, with Grey Cup Unite, uh, you know, there's some events and Randy Ambrosi's uh, address to the nation yesterday his state of the league and then he came on my show today so we can talk a little bit about that but it's not like you're seeing people driving through the streets waving rider flags just to pretend that there's a great cup week there's just not a lot of talk about it and i guess to answer your question they accepted several months ago that this just wasn't going to happen so it's business as usual around here right now well, we, we unfortunately well remember the last one that was there back in 2013. It was uh, not a great day for the Ticats, pretty good day for the riders. But uh, what is amazing to me, though, is, Rod, that I went back and looked today because I thought I was wrong. I'm stunned how few Grey Cups Regina has actually hosted. There's only been three, 2013, 03, and 95. That's amazing to me. I know this was to be the fourth. <clears throat> and, and But hey, Hamilton hasn't had that many either. Right. Uh, going back to 96, when was the last one in Hamilton? These are the two best fr- fan bases in the CFL with the least amount of Grey Cups hosted <laughs> for decades. And, and it's funny because Randy Ambrosi spoke yesterday that they're intending on playing the Grey Cup in Hamilton in 2021. And I'm sure we'll get to that in our discussion here right now. But yep. just with this, we've got a beautiful new stadium. You've got a beautiful stadium that isn't new anymore, but it feels new. You know, it's, it's it's depressing to kind of sit and talk about these things. Yep. And to, to be honest with our talk show, we've, I've instructed my producer to go deep into the NFL Rolodex and NLL, like lacrosse. I said, I don't want to sit on, on, on the air every day for hours and mope about the fact there's no CFL <laughs> or Grey Cup. I just can't do it. It's too depressing. But this week, it's pretty hard to ignore, isn't it? Like, for instance, um, Daryl Davis, who you probably know – Yes, I do. Top guys, yeah, top guys with the Football Reporters of Canada is hosting a virtual 
FRC suite on Friday night for reporters of the CFL to get together on a Zoom call because we haven't seen each other in a year. But very flimsy replacement for what we normally would be going through right now. Uh, for the record, um, both Hamilton and Saskatchewan, or Hamilton and Regina, have hosted three great cups, which in each case is only two more than Sarnia has hosted. So there's, um, you know, something to ponder for the CFL about how that happens. Uh, you mentioned Randy Ambrosi, and you mentioned 2021, and he was on your show, and he did his State of the League and, and uh, yesterday. And I, I, I guess he was optimistic about next year, Although I'm I'm not really sure whether that optimism was just a front or whether there's any real reason to be optimistic. I, I I'm I, what am I missing where the optimism should come from, Rod? You know what? You're really hitting on some key points there because I wrote a commentary today. There he was optimistic, but he wasn't realistic. You know, I, I watched it yesterday and I just thought. I know Randy's a positive guy, but I think he missed the uprights with, with what the field goal he tried to kick yesterday. So I had the opportunity to bring him on today. And I, I said, Randy, I was kind of hoping you would say that the CFL will play in 2021, even if crowds aren't allowed. And he explained like he went into that address yesterday, Scott, with a plan. And that was to be overly optimistic and instill confidence in the fan base and Canadians that there will be fans in the stands next year. But we, we kind of went deep into it. I mean, I, I mean, you're a news guy. I speak with health officials in my other career in recovery, and I, like, I've got the contacts too. And best, best case scenario is crowds gathering in this country Labor Day of next year. And Randy agreed, and he said, listen, I, I get that. He goes, we do have several options here. He said, I wasn't in position to divulge them, and I hope you understand that. And I said, okay, well, I'm just glad to hear you say it because it came across as the only way they're playing in in 2021 is with fans in the stands. That's the way it came across. Wouldn't you agree? If you Well, it, it has to. It, it has to. What has changed, Rod, this, in the last number of months? I mean, they couldn't play this year because they couldn't afford to play without fans because there's no money to do it. What has changed? Well, no, no, as far as you and I know, nothing. And I'd like to believe they're doing something behind the scenes to be able to play next year without fans kicking off week one, June 1st weekend. But he's not prepared to divulge that. I would just say that he hinted that that's being talked about behind the scenes. He wanted to, to again, instill confidence and be optimistic that there will be fans in the stadium and they will be playing a great cup in Hamilton next year with fans. Well, that's all September, October, November. But I'm kind of coming at it from the players of whom I speak with daily, Scott. And they're saying, should we be preparing for a season? Are we going to go through another summer of not knowing if there's a season or not, only to eventually have it potentially pulled? And that is the case. So uh, as far as we know, that's the case. And, and um, Randy, like I say, he hinted that there are, they're trying to be as flexible as possible and I believe there is an option to play without fans in the stands next year. There has to be, because it was a PR nightmare in a way. Would you not agree that they didn't play this year? And I know that they're not the NHL and they're not the NFL or MLB. But there was a time in this country that sports fans held the CFL in that regard. Wouldn't you agree yeah, with that? Yeah, no, I, I, I absolutely agree. The flip side, though, is that if you say 
you know, we've got to overcome the PR problem by plunging ahead and doing this. How much of a financial mess do you get yourself into that you may never recover from? And so, I mean, there's no good answer. <laughs> no, there isn't. And there is a very... Except, except for a vaccine. Except for a vaccine well, and you hope and pray that maybe January, February, March, we get something. But I think that's uh, dreaming. No. That goes that, that goes back to my discussions with health officials. And that's not going to happen because as, as I've been informed, they don't even have a plan yet for distribution as to where this is going to go. Is it going to go to the elderly? Is it going to go to the kids? They don't even know that yet. Forget about widespread distribution. So, yeah, he brought up those vaccines. And it was a little bit of a smokescreen, what he said yesterday, about that, trying to instill optimism. And, and, and the one thing he said to me was, he's like, Rod, you're a pro, you get it. <laughs> he's like, you're asking the hard questions. He goes, I just was kind of preferred to make a statement and uh, look, feel optimistic. And I'm like, well, I just got the hard questions here. I Because for, for a variety of reasons, because you know what, Scott? Season tickets are on sale in most markets. And... I don't want to see people pony up their dough thinking there's going to be a season and be falsely led. Is that like, I know for a fact in Saskatchewan, the tickets are on sale and Edmonton, the tickets are on sale. I'm not sure about Hamilton. I mean, what good is it to go buy a 10 game season ticket package only to have that cut in half and you're expected to leave your money with the team again. I heard a stat that in Hamilton, over 90% of Ticat season ticket holders left their money with the team this year. I'm just, no, I believe it. I believe that. Yeah, but I'm just wondering how many are willing to do that for another year. Only because I was with a business owner yesterday whose house figuratively is on fire. And he said, the riders are very low on my priority list right now. I'm worried about my own employees, my own building, my own business, my own family. So, you know, we're, we're, there's a lot of unknowns left here right now. And I guess, I guess the point is I don't know that the CFL is as high of a priority list for Canadians right now as we'd like to think that it is. It's actually dropping rather rapidly. And with them not playing, that doesn't help matters. Well, I, I also wonder, Rod, whether um, at some point next year, you're going to see TSN, who everybody knows broadcast the CFL and doesn't have a ton of other properties in the summertime. If you're going to see TSN have to step up and say, you know what, we're going to pay some more than we really wanted to just to keep this league going next year. Um, it may not serve us at this moment. It may be more money than we think the league is worth, but in the long term, not having the league play and potentially having the league die is even worse to us. You're, uh, I've heard that suggestion before. Obviously, TSN and Bell haven't said anything about that, but uh, but you're right. I mean, it's it's fascinating to watch from the outside because the Players Association president, Solomon Elamimian, said just last night the players are willing to play less games. They're willing to play in a bubble. And he didn't say they're willing to take less money, but he might as well have. Because, Scott, I'm talking to these guys on a daily basis. They would have accepted any CBA proposal to play in 2020. They would have played basically for free. That has not changed. The one thing where I go to the league's defense is a lot of players and coaches too, for that matter, are getting very testy right now, feeling they deserve a answer on if there'll be a season in 2021 or not. And I'm like, guys, I'm sorry. You don't deserve anything. You didn't deserve it last August 1st. You don't deserve it now. And it's not like they're hiding anything, Scott. I think that's the main thing. You know, there were some viewers to my show saying, 
that Randy Ambrosi was going to be lying in a state of the franchise address. And I said, hey, you can accuse Randy of a lot of things. Don't call him a liar. They're not hiding anything here as far as I'm concerned. They don't know if they're going to play or not. So I, I just think it's unfair for the players to say they're owed an answer when there isn't one. That's the problem. That's the problem that there, there just isn't an answer. And I, you know, I want to be optimistic. I would love it if the league was back next year, even for half a year. I can't see how they play without fans in the stands, unless, as I say, TSN decides to really pony up just to keep this thing alive. And then if they don't play, then what? And, and, you know, you, Rod, you've been around this league a long time. People around here in Hamilton, one of the things that they want to know I know the Ticats have talked about, and they've been very public lately in the last few days, about the plans. They have multiple different versions of plans to be able to host a Grey Cup under different circumstances. Your your gut feeling, do you think there will be a Grey Cup in Hamilton next year? or Because Regina has it the year after now, and then Hamilton, they're not going to bump them, so it'll be the year after that. Is Hamilton looking at a 2021 Grey Cup, do you believe, or a 2023 no, Grey I Cup? Do. I, I, I do. For a couple of reasons. <clears throat> for one, if Randy Ambrosi says it, I believe him. The one tagline he didn't use with that was best case scenario. He didn't say that. I kind of wish that he had best case scenario. We're playing fans in stands next year. But <clears throat> I think that they're going to play, and I think they're going to find a way to play without fans. I mean, I remember at the way back at the start of this, the mayor of Toronto, John Tory, who has a deep association with the CFL, Larry Smith, the former commissioner <clears throat> turned senator, both of them said the CFL needs to, needs to find a way to get creative. And there's still people that say, Scott, this league has survived for 100 and some odd, 110 years. You know, it's, it's not going to die now. That attitude isn't helping. Like, you guys need to start getting creative and finding ways of raising money, i.e., um, through betting and apps and stadium signage there's a lot of ways to raise money that i haven't really seen them do yet and i'd like to think that they're working on it i'm not sure that they are and and furthermore because the cfl isn't in that stratosphere of the big four major league baseball nhl nfl nba they you know they they could be in the smaller stratosphere of the cebl which played just down the road from you guys in the in the meridian Mm -hmm. right in st Catharines. it was only a two-week tournament but I swear these guys, the players anyways, will play if it's a five, six game season. There's no doubt. Just to play. And I you can't tell me. The spring league's doing it in America right now. You know who's down there coaching right now? Jeff Reinbold, Marcel Belfe, Drew Tate, the longtime CFL quarterback, is coaching in that league. McLeod Bethel Thompson's playing in it. Who you know from yep, the argument. Yep. So so these these guys will do anything to play. So my point is, if you guys, if the league can scrape up enough money to pull it off so we can say that there's a 2021 season, and maybe by next November, let's, and let's remember that's a year from now, I could see there being a Grey Cup in Hamilton. I yeah, I, I, that I, yes, that I can. I, I don't have a whole lot of confidence of a start of the year, but I do have a lot of confidence for the end of the year. Uh, as for the league, finding a way to survive. I, I think of the CFL sometimes like the Glenn Close character in Fatal Attraction. Just no matter what you do, you can't kill her. And uh, it's, she's going to keep coming back. And, and you know, that's good. In this case, that's good because heaven knows the CFL has gone through some stuff that um, might have killed a lot of other leagues. But uh, 
still going and hopefully still will for a long time. Well, if I, Rod, if I may, Scott, yeah. just, if I forget, I have 60 seconds. I was talking to a member of the 86 Ticats just last week because they had a viewing party, right, at Tim Hortons Field with some of the guys from that team. And they said their coaching staff was five players back then. I think their roster was 33 or 34. The, the CFL's biggest problem, I believe, right now is not downsizing enough because they're still too top-heavy. The executives are making too much money. I mean, we may be going back to a CFL of the 80s with smaller rosters, smaller staff. That's the only way. And the, where the CFL's failing right now is their refusal to do that. That's my last word on that. Thanks for allowing me. It, no, no, it's, 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 it's an interesting thought. I'm sure that uh, anybody listening who's a coach or front office person just went, Rod, you're killing me. But you know what? It's, I mean, it's the, probably the reality is if there isn't money, you got to make hard decisions and every other business is making those hard decisions. I, as much as I would love for things to keep moving on a forward upward trajectory, I just, I don't think the CFL is different from every other business when they have hard decisions to make. You, you finally have to make those and some of them very much hurt. The Scott Radley show. Weekday evenings from six to eight on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley show podcast is available on Apple podcast, Google podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode, and also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.